Cooperatively owned businesses are the future. They're how we're gonna get through the changes that the whole world is going through right now. They fit in uh, really well in cities that are being gentrified and they also fit in in cities and communities that don't have a lot of money. And there's a lot of ways to be cooperative. The, the real root of what makes a cooperatively owned business is the idea that decisions are made by people. That every person that is involved in your co-op gets one vote, one person, one vote, and money is not what drives our decisions. So it doesn't matter how much money you bring to the co-op. If you bring a little bit of money, you have one vote. And if you bring a lot of money, you have one vote. That's equity, that's community, that's taking care of each other. We're intentionally taught that anything other than ruthless capitalism is bad. And it just takes a little bit of learning. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, don't be afraid of, of trying something new and trying the cooperative model. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on San Francisco's longest-running queer bar, The Stud. Through these stories, we will talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. On this podcast, we'll be talking to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. We started this podcast when the COVID pandemic struck here in San Francisco. This podcast is our way of staying in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers and queens that love it. Maybe you're one of those people who's never been to the stud and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about the stud? To which I say, the stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement. Maybe you're one of those people who's never been to the stud and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about just another queer bar? To which I'd say, the stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some extremely legendary performers. On this podcast, we are talking about the reason why I'm here and maybe the reason why you're here. The Stud Bar and its journey to becoming the first cooperatively owned LGBT nightlife venue in the United States. With us today, we have political strategist and LGBT historic preservationist, Nate Albee, and Rachel Ryan, president of the Stud Collective and managing owner of the Stud Bar. Rachel, Nate, welcome. Thank you, great to thank, be here. Thank you so much. Um, we actually usually have our guests reintroduce themselves. So if you don't mind, who the hell are you people? Um, I am Rachel Ryan. I am originally from San Francisco. Um, have lived in the Bay Area my whole life. And um, I uh, helped kick off the Stud Collective and have been um, uh, co-running it for the last three years. Um, <clears throat> I'm Nate Albee. I have been living in San Francisco for about 13 years now, originally from Reno, Nevada. I'm a political strategist. Uh, I work to get people elected and to get legislation passed in San Francisco. And I exclusively work for uh, far left candidates. Um, and a big focus of my work has been around stopping gentrification and uh, protecting historic queer spaces and historic queer businesses in particular. Well, thank you again for joining us today. I'm just going to hop right into these questions. 
The stud until recently was one of San Francisco's longest continuously operating LGBT venues in San Francisco, operating since 1966, three years before Stonewall and the same year as the Compton's Cafeteria riot in San Francisco until June of 2020. That is 54 years of history. So my question to you is, what is your favorite piece of the stud's history? That's a very good question. There is so much history crammed into that bar. Um, I have to say probably the thing that's most meaningful for me is a lot of the organizers after Harvey Milk um, was assassinated and his murderer, Dan White, got off with very little jail time. There was a riot in San Francisco a queer-led riot similar to what we're seeing now all over the country and cop cars were burned and um, there was a real righteous sense of outrage that the queer community which had been brutalized in San Francisco for decades um, that even our, our leaders could be murdered with uh, no repercussions and um, after the riots a lot of the organizers of the protests and riots they they talk about coming to the stud afterwards and covered in you know soot from lighting cop cars on fire and danced on our dance floor and that's really meaningful for me yeah that's incredible um rachel how about you i think for me generally the thing about the studs history that i really has always really um, connected with me is how mixed the crowd at the stud has been um since the early days um, when a lot of queer bars sort of told a single story in terms of terms of their clientele um, hearing stories about the the different folks who would come together on the dance floor at the stud women and trans people and you know the hippies and the leather folks um, that was something about its history that always just really felt special to me um, i think personally um my connection with the studs history. My my dad was a general contractor whose business was based in Soma, just around the corner from the stud for 35 years. And so the, I don't know, it, it had this sort of place of, of existence and legend even before I found the queer nightlife for myself. Um, you know, I went to Hamburger Mary's as a kid, which was um, kitty corner from the stud when it was on Folsom Street. And um, the two were, were these sort of sister businesses across the street from each other where everybody would go dance at the stud and then go get late night food at Hamburger Mary's. Um, but I agree, they're just, there's so many special little historic gems that keep popping up, even hearing things from Chloe Miller, who's been doing the stud pin archives and, and like physically unearthing artifacts from the stud basement and photos and... Um, and also unearthing just amazing stories from doing interviews and um, uh, archival work. Do you know what is where the Hamburger Mary's building used to be? What What's there now? It, the Willows. Oh, that used to be Hamburger Mary's. If I'm not mistaken, it was that corner at uh, 12th and Folsom Street that's now the Willows. That is so cool. I had no idea. Um, 
I think what I really loved about both of your answers was that, I don't know if you planned these out beforehand, but I'm pretty sure you didn't, but it really speaks to the two things that I think are um, most important about the stud, which is uh, its rich history and connection to um, LGBT liberation, whether it be through happenstance or through, um, uh, through direct involvement, and also um, some of the diversity that we see at the stud, or continue to see at the stud, even even um, even though I think that there's always room for improvement there, and I I've definitely felt that um, that the stud has continued to be a place where most people feel welcome. I am hearkening back to the interview that we did with Susan Stryker, and the piece of the stud's history that I think is most powerful to me personally is um, this idea of intersectionality and how. Uh, during the 1960s, uh, Huey Newton, who was one of the founders of the um, the Black Panthers, um, actually I believe it was in 1973, he made a call calling for an intersectional movement um, between the Black Panther Party, the Gay Liberation Movement, um, the uh, Women's Liberation Movement, um, and he made a call for unity. And one of the places where the Black Panthers first met with the Gay Liberation Front was at the stud bar, according to Susan Stryker, which I think is so incredibly powerful. It is so amazing. And I feel like I am one of the local stud historians. And I learned that from the podcast and like squealed when I heard it. Yeah, I think that's so cool. Um, Gosh, it feels so uh, incredible to be in part of a place that holds so much of our history. Um, And we are currently really figuring out how to make this legacy continue into the future. Um, Part of that was really the development of the co-op model and making it work for a bar. Um, So I have a question, which I think I know the answer to, but humor me. How did we decide on a co-op model um, how did the idea enter the conversation? Um, and also, can we talk about what is a co-op? Nathan Alby, take it away. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I can, <clears throat> it's it's hard to pinpoint where ideas start because, you know, one thing leads to another, but I, but I, I can tell you, you know, for me, it, it started when the the Lexington closed. So the Lexington um, was the last um, queer women's bar in San Francisco. And it, it was a really influential place for me, even though I'm a cis gay man. Um, I had a lot of queer women friends who were really influential in bringing me into politics. And when the Lexington closed because the city, you know, was facing unprecedented gentrification that has still not happened anywhere to this level anywhere else in the United States so far. I had, even though I I did so much work around gentrification issues, I felt kind of hopeless um, because really, how do you protect something? How do you protect a business that is not a nonprofit, but a business in a capitalist system that only cares about profits. So I just started thinking a lot about, um, you know, what, 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 what happened, what happens the next time 
a really important cultural institution, um, which for the queer community, a lot of our cultural institutions for a lot of different reasons are bars and are small businesses and, and are for profit. And um, I started doing research. I started really looking into, you know, what are models that could work? And one of the places, again, also connected to the Lexington was the Lusty Lady. Um, so the Lusty Lady was the first cooperatively owned strip club in the United States. And um, it was, as most strip clubs are, ran by, by queer women. And they had a cooperative model and they actually closed a few years before um, the Lexington did and before we got started on the stud. But um, that, you know, I, I think San Franciscans had a, a real sense of pride in the Lusty Lady, which was the country's first unionized strip club and cooperatively owned strip club. And, um, you know, I wanted to take those lessons that had been learned from the Lusty Lady and see if they could be applied to a nightclub. And the answer turned out to be, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just as to kind of catch people up, so Michael McElhaney had been an owner of the stud for the last 20 odd years. Um, he and Fiesta, um, also known as, uh, as Mr. Ben, Benjamin Gibbard, um, had taken over the stud about 20 years ago, and Fiesta had passed away in 2013, I believe, leaving Michael as the sole proprietor of a very difficult business. So Michael toughed it out for many years on his own. Um, and then when the building sold in 2016, he had a... Uh, as far as I know, he had a great relationship with the previous landlords. I believe one of the the owners that he had worked with for many, many years passed away. And um, so the building sold without him knowing. Um, he held a community meeting in uh, the beginning of July and invited people to come in and basically said to the, the crowd, uh, this is what's going on. The building has been sold my rent has been tripled and they are asking me to vacate the premises within the next, I believe it was like four months. So he was like, I'm, I'm beat. I'm done. I want to go back home to Hawaii. I want to take care of my mama and I would love to pass the torch to somebody else in the community. So for, yeah, so go ahead, Nate. And I was standing in that meeting um, next to, Micah Sigourney, who a longtime drag queen who every Friday night for 10 years was hosting drag at the stud. And um, was it Micah or was it Vivian Forevermore? Micah Sigourney, who's, yeah, uh, she, he was standing there as Micah Sigourney, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, hosted, hosted for 10 years as Vivian Forevermore and is this incredibly talented performer. And I was standing next to him and I said, I have been preparing for this. Like, I think I know a way we might be able to save the stud. And we went next door to the Lone Star and um, over some beers, just started mapping it out. And uh, one of the first things we did was call Rachel Ryan and be like, we have a crazy idea. What do you think? 
I mean, you had you had been preparing me this for, for a long time since the closing of the Lex, since, you know, standing outside and all weeping together. Um, yeah. And and that feeling that you described of of powerlessness, of of kind of like peering around and wondering if like there was going to be some 11th hour save the day miracle. Um, you know, it was a lot of nights of me and Nate sitting in a bar with him being like, I have this idea. I've got this plan. And we're not going to let another of our spaces go quietly into the night. Well, let's 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 keep the conversation going because I want to go back to the idea of the cooperative and um, wanted to talk a little bit I wanted to talk a little bit about the journey and the process of forming the cooperative. So how did that happen? How did we develop a co-op out of thin air? Through an unbelievable, painful amount of work, you know, which, yeah, I mean, I, I can kind of give you the, so kind of taking it back. So after that initial meeting, Micah Sigourney, Vivian Forevermore. So Vivian Forevermore, Rachel Ryan, um, myself, and um, Little John. John fucking Cartwright. John, John Cartwright, who's a amazing artist and, and DJ. Um, the four of us just started getting together and hammering out the details. And, and one of the first things we did was we, we, had, we had to buy the bar. That, that was a, a reality. Like we had to make sure that uh, Michael, who'd been running it at a you know extreme sacrifice for him to himself for 20 years as a real labor of love, that he got um, the he he was compensated appropriately for the bar. That so that was a real priority for us, and so um, we had to bring in enough people that would be able to um, you know that could bring in enough of their own uh, equity to be able to purchase the bar. We asked, I think, uh, around eighteen people, and I think seventeen of them said yes. And um, I'd say 16 of them uh, ended up uh, being able to raise the money and, and join the co-op. So we went from being the four of us, you know, kind of envisioning and um, getting ready to a room full of 17 people who had never done anything remotely like this before. So it was a small conversation with a few folks. How did it expand beyond that? So... You know, our first goal was to invite people into the co-op and help them uh, raise the money that was needed to, um, to, to buy into the co-op so that we could then turn around and actually buy the bar from Michael. And so this was, so this was a numbers game, it sounds like. I mean, there was, did we know at, at that point how much money we would need or how many people we were looking at bringing in? We knew about how much a liquor license was going to cost us. And then the the game was um, figuring out how many people it would take to cover the liquor license and also um, the, the sort of purchase and goodwill towards Michael. Yeah, making sure that Michael was compensated for his, you know, years of selfless work. Mm-hmm. So the landlord... Uh, initially told Michael that they had to be out by the end of October there. So they only had three more months for the stud um, before the stud had to close. So our goal was to 
pull together a cooperatively owned nightclub, which as far as we know had not been done in the United States, to raise the money to buy a bar in one of the most expensive uh, cities in America and to negotiate with a landlord who didn't want us to be there and convince them to let us stay. Um, and we had to get that all done before Halloween, so three months. And we also applied for legacy business status. That's right. Two years before, I wrote and passed a piece of legislation called um, the Legacy Business Registry, which is the first of its kind in its con- in the country that uh, creates historic preservation, historic protections for businesses rather than just the buildings that they're in. We also were quickly trying to apply to um, have the city recognize us as one of those legacy businesses. Gosh. Okay, Nate. Well, you're basically the mastermind behind this whole thing. So how, please tell us, please tell us how, um, how did people get sort of pulled into the stud collective? So we, I think one of the things that is most surprising is how many people said yes we actually originally had a really long list of people. I mean, there's so many brilliant folks in San Francisco nightlife that had a deep connection to the stud. And um, we had a night where we just brainstormed and got a, a list of, of everyone down. Um, and we started at the top and I think called our the first 18 people. And I, I'd say the all of them said yes. Um, but for the most part, it ended up being people that we had connections with. It, it, the, the, the Stud Collective is first and foremost a group of friends, um, a group of people who've worked together, who've known each other, um, and who had the stud as uh, something that tied them all together. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important part of the conversation to have is that there was a real need because we had to move so quickly and because this was something that had never been done before, um, that there was a real pressure to get it done and um, not very much time or room for error. Um, And so it required people to have these sort of prior working relationships or at least goodwill towards one another in order to make all of that work. And I also remember it being um, pretty large in the beginning, um, but that there were so many meetings that happened. I think literally several meetings a week and the meetings would go on for hours and hours just figuring out who would be involved and what kind of um, structure we needed and how much money we needed and how it should be divvied up. And I, I do think that there was a level of attrition that happened um, as we went on. Yeah, um, we only lost three people from our initial cohort. Uh, and... Um, you know, so one of the things that we knew with having this large group of friends was, uh, and and I think, I think when people hear about when I, I think when you, when you first bring up that you are part of a collective, a cooperatively owned bar, the very first thing people think of is a bunch of hippies in a room talking about their feelings, and nothing could be farther from the truth. We knew that because we were a tight network of friends, that we actually had to be even more disciplined um, and learn how to put our feelings aside to make collective decisions. And um, I think where we really were 
privileged is that we had the example of the lusty lady and the lusty lady's failures taught us what to do and what not to do. And we sat down with members of the lusty lady and they talked to us about what they would have done differently if they were starting a co-op from scratch. And so we, we, these meetings that we had, and, and we, we were meeting three to four times a week because we had to iron out an entire system, an entire operating agreement, um, which had to be unanimous. Um, the agreement had from, from every way that we interacted with each other uh, and how decisions were made had to be unanimously agreed upon by all 18 members of the co-op. And getting 18 people to agree on something uh, takes an, an enormous amount of uh, trust, um, but also discipline. So the meetings that we had were run using um, a system um, that I was taught through working on um, uh, working in City Hall, working in, in the city's democratic clubs, and then also based on uh, other cooperatively owned uh, businesses and unions and uh, how they reach consensus. And so the real, the real gist of, of that process was training ourselves not to talk just to feel heard that um that if you are in a room with 18 people and everyone takes turn weighing in on every single issue it would take months and months for us to uh, agree on something so we really had to learn and, and as being people who are from the left every single one of us has been involved in nonprofits or in organizations that were really focused on making sure every voice is heard. And instead we had to teach ourselves to ask ourselves the question, do I need to weigh in right now? Do I need to be, uh, do I need to add on something when, when what I believe has already been said by another person? Um, and it took some getting used to, but I think, what people are most impressed by is if you come to a stud collective meeting, we are Rachel as the president runs them. They're, they're a well-oiled machine um, with uh, people really respecting the communication rules that we've set out to keep ourselves um, effective. And let's be clear. The reason that it became so effective and well-oiled is because we had six and seven hour meetings where people were dying and because we were having three or four of those a week and it was basically a separate job for all of us that we just couldn't take it anymore yeah. that it was this is <laughs> that true. We sort of it was self-preservation that made us really stick to robert's rules and learn that process and and sort of get over our own egos when it came to speaking this is true yeah. and i mean we we assigned homework right out the gate you know, the first meetings, we said to people, this is the model that we are striving towards. You are either on the bus or you're off the bus. So if you want to participate in this in this endeavor and this model, you need to learn the rules and how it works. So we assigned reading to everybody for, you know, anybody who wants to continue in the process has got to read Thinking Outside the Boss which is a great text about cooperatives mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Think, thinking outside the boss and not boss. Yep. Boss thinking outside <laughs> the boss, our, our early stud Bible. Um, and yeah, it really, it was, we had the concept really early on and 
but it was figuring out how to squish this unique business into um, a, a, a beautiful model that has been done very successfully by bakeries and grocery stores and um, bike shops, but not before by a nightclub. So getting, getting both the members on board and then figuring out how to translate the business into that model definitely took a lot of, of hours and um, blood, sweat, and tears. And the model that we chose, I mean, and this is, this is what I, one of the things that I so appreciate about this collective is we are open to change. And the system that we've set up allows us to change our model to really focus on what's effective. And the model that we chose to emulate was Rainbow Grocery, one of the oldest cooperative owned businesses in the city that we all really admired. Um, and it turns out that the grocery store model that we all chose to, to, to adopt was absolutely the wrong model to run a, uh, a nightclub. So we did our first year um, organizing ourselves in, in committees similar to how a, how a grocery store does. So, so say Rainbow Groceries, they have a committee that handles their cheese department, a committee that handles their green grocery section, a committee that handles their finance, and those committees make all decisions. And uh, we tried something similar with having a committee that handled our our. Uh, uh, our committee that handled our, our bartending, a committee that handled our uh, production and uh, uh, party promotion, and um, it didn't work. Um, and we ended up ultimately inventing our own system that works for us, and um, we've been doing great and up until a global pandemic. I wanted to, should we dig into some of the committees or how the, how the work is sort of divided? Like, how does this all work? So we basically had 20 people who wanted to save the stuff from closure. We came up with this cooperative model. Um, we figured out how to talk to each other and uh, loosely figured out how to structure the co cooperative. But uh, where did we go from there? How did these committees do the work? What kind of committees did we have? What was important to the stud? I think one of the things that made the stud collective um, different than a lot of other co-ops was that we were a group of people who were not already workers at the business. Most of us had affiliation to it in one way or another, whether as a bartender, a DJ, a drag queen, a security person. But... Um, we also, as Nate was saying earlier, like it was really important that we assemble a group of people who had the capital to buy into a business in one of the most competitive markets in America. So a lot of the people who came in as members to the Stud Collective had full-time jobs. And when we first laid out the the framework for the Stud's day-to-day -day operations it was really important that we did all of like the staffing internally so we had regulations about like okay anybody who's a member has got to work you know at least five hours a month which meant we had folks who were like you know biostatisticians or vps for in the fashion industry saying like oh i guess i'll work coat check i guess i'll work the door if that's what we need 
But we, and so similarly in terms of management, we set up a system where we would have um, a lead for each department. But for a lot of those people, this was sort of additional work beyond their day job. And things just ended up feeling too spread out and a little bit um, uh, just too tenuous. So the the more meetings that we stacked on people, the less productive um, things seemed to be. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, there was definitely, uh, we were trying to figure out how to best use people's skills, I feel like, even though many of us were not former workers at the bar, meaning we weren't bartenders or we didn't, you know, regularly come in to do shifts. Um, we were, you know, involved as performers um, or patrons that came from a really diverse array of backgrounds. And so there were people who were really good at numbers and there were people that were really good at party promotion. And there were people who um, may have worked at a bar before, even if it wasn't the stud. And so figuring out how we could take our collective experiences and really make them work for the stud. Um, I think was a really um, important part of those conversations. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something you said, which is that um, how important the money was. Um, because I think when we formed the stud, we had these conversations around who we wanted uh, to be a part of this collective. And one of the things we wanted to make sure we didn't do was just be uh, a collective ownership of white gay men. Uh, <laughs> Not that we have anything against white gay men, um, you know, but we were really committed to this idea of diversity and expanding um, what it means to be a bar owner in San Francisco and how bars were owned and how LGBT venues and uh, uh, historic sites in San Francisco uh, were preserved and also how we really built a, perf- a future for the queer community. Um, and we saw that as, as being, um, as making sure inclusion was part of that. Um, and I, I, I do want to say that I don't think that we were perfect in that process. I think that we tried really hard to be as inclusive as possible and we did have some success. I mean, we, we, we brought on a lot of women, uh, we brought on, um, several people of color, even though I think we would have preferred to bring on more. Um, and we also, I don't know if we want to talk about this actually, but there was a little bit of a system of people using their privilege to be what we called super founders um, and and helping to sort of allow some of us with less capital to buy into the bar. There absolutely was. Yeah, we, we did um, really luck out in that we had some folks who were able to use like their financial stability and their privilege to get us that extra mile over the finish line when it was looking like we weren't going to make it. Um, as the, the clock was ticking to when we needed to put money into escrow to actually make this thing real. Um, you know, so wild, as we were saying before, just the number of hours that we put in informing the stud, stud collective, that was over the course of six months when we didn't have a bar. It was just we were doing this thing with the hope that we would be successful. Um but it wasn't until December, uh, going into New Year's Eve um, of 2016 into 2017, that we actually took over ownership. So that was it was July to December that it was just it was just a dream that we were working on. On that sunshiny note, I want to move on <laughs> um, and talk about something 
a little darker. Um, I want to talk about some of the toughest moments that we've had as owners. What for you uh, was your toughest moment or toughest conversation that we had to have or toughest obstacle we had to overcome? Hmm. Oh, I, I am here for the tea. Let's, let's spill. Let's spill for history. Let's spill some tea for history. Has some history. No, there's no, okay. History tea. Okay. Um, I think, I think I'll start it off. I think for me, uh, one of the hardest moments was when we realized that um, there was, one of our collective members had to leave. Um, you know, and it was a it was a collective decision that that was what was best for that individual, um, and for the bar, and for uh, our continued stewardship of the stud. That you know we had to um, separate with one of our members who was really you know a, a key. Uh, I want to say that they were a really really formative um, or really important to the formation of the stud and and influential in the way that we operate and some of the decisions that we made, um, but ultimately made the decision that the stud collective was not something that they could continue to do. And, um, that was really hard. It was hard to have those conversations and figure that out. Yeah. Um, I think that's something, you know, for anyone who's considering doing this work is, is to remember, um, not everyone in the world is going to get along and people aren't going to like each other. And that's, human and natural not all friends are going to enjoy working with each other yeah that was tough like uh realizing that you know somebody that it just wasn't going to work out with one of our members and finding a way to to treat each other with respect as we broke up you know with them um was something actually it was tough but i'm actually proud of 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 how Mm -hmm. we did it i am too i think that um Additionally, each time that we have done sort of a structural pivot, it's been it's been hard. It has, um, you know, when we we were talking about our original model of having all of these different uh, committees with committee heads and realizing that that was not going to work for us, um, we had that first epiphany about six months in. Um, the same time that we realized being having internal staffing didn't make sense, um, considering that we we brought our like lead weekend bartenders uh, out of uh, various states of rustiness and um, uh, other careers, dust, dusted off the old bar rag around the, around the same time that we realized that internal staffing did not make sense and that, hey, maybe we should bring in some professional bartenders. We also realized that having uh, eight different chairs of different departments uh, was not the most efficient way to run a nightclub. So we did a pivot within the first six months of being open and we did another pivot um, this past fall and uh, both of them were, were tough. There were uh, you know, I've, I've always really appreciated that we have um, so much structure to fall back on, the way that our operating agreement is set up, the way that uh, meetings are conducted. Um, it really gives a sort of a ground for, sorry, a, a lays the groundwork for um, being able to work together in a respectful way. But at the end of the day, 
you know, people's feelings can get hurt. And so those, those structural pivots have definitely been very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I have two, two, two drama moments. I'd say um, probably the, the most anger making, challenging, rough spot. The first one was when we realized that another member of our community was actively bidding for the bar trying to we think we we don't even know if they actually had an intention to purchase it but might have just been trying um out of pettiness or like past grievances with members of the co-op were trying to raise the price of the bar so we found out we as the as the co-op is getting ready to purchase it uh towards the very last second we were told that somebody else was wanting to pay more for it and we ended up paying more for the bar than um i think we had originally intended because um somebody was you know bidding to to raise the price so that that was that was angering because it felt um like people's personal issues and past breakups and 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 beefs they had with co-op members um made them do something that i think you know ultimately uh, was bad for the community that was one and then um I actually have been shocked how contentious programming has been. Um, that one of the issues that I think has caused the most um, anger in the co-op is um, what parties should we have in our bar and who should be DJing when and um, how those people should be paid and treated. And I think, um, you know, I, if, you, if you think about it, it, it makes sense because... I think the thing that we all fell in love with this stud in the first place was the DJs and the programming. And that's the, that's the deep connection that I think every single member of that co-op has, um, is, you know, falling in love with their community or a person or, or music or, or drag on that dance floor. And so, uh, yeah, some of our, some of our, our nastiest fights have been over, somebody loves this party and somebody else loves this party and, and who should get which night and um, you know, who should be lifted up because ultimately there's only so many nights that you can throw uh, put into a bar. I think that touches on a really important cornerstone of the struggle of keeping the stud alive is this idea that we are preserving a space and preserving a legacy, um, but that we're also bringing it into the future. And part of that is making decisions that are financially good for the bar. Um, and to be clear, none of us are, none of the owners are making money off of the bar. Um, we are really stewards for the space and again, for the legacy. Um, and be, But beyond actually working at the bar as door people, as bartenders, um, as managers, uh, no one's really making money sitting back like, bringing in dividends from the the profits of the bar. Um, but Not even the bar is making money off the bar. <laughs> we are the bar a is... non-profit community right. center. But to that point, like the margins are super thin because we don't have any cushion. And so we do have to make decisions that are going to keep those doors open and keep people employed and keep, keep uh, the stud alive. Um, or at least, oh God, it feels so hard to say, but um, 
you know, that used to be the case. And now, now we're, now we're looking, looking at it a little bit differently. Um, and so I, I do want to talk a little bit about that balance or not. I don't want to talk about it. I'm sorry. Let me back up. I, I just want to acknowledge that that balance was really important of, we want to keep studly parties going. Um, but we also need to make sure that the bar is making enough money so that we can keep those studly parties going. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this whole project has been that I think, you know, the history of, of queer organizing and culture is tied to the bars, like it or not, that's, that's the reality. That was one of the first places that we were allowed to openly be gay and, um, were now moving into I think that that idea of what is a community space, we've surpassed the kind of, for lack of a better word, capitalist model or business model of one person owns this and they have, uh, they make decisions that are good for their pocketbook. Um, the stud is, I think, and I hope the the beginning of a new movement of really saying, okay, we can't just think about a bar as a business. We have to take into consideration that it is deeply meaningful for many LGBT people, these, these spaces. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's what I, why I think the study is so important is, is especially as now COVID is here. Um, and then as gentrification happens in every major city of the world, San Francisco was just the worst and the first, um, but every major, you know, city that has an LGBT community is seeing the same thing happen now with which their bars are closed, are closing. And then COVID is just exacerbated. It's just made worse what was already happening with, with nightlife slowly being squeezed out. So um, that whole idea of how do we acknowledge that we are, we actually are community space and then how do we operate within capitalism to keep these community spaces open? Um, that's, that's what the goal of the stud is. And hopefully we'll be able to set another example for bars who are closing because of COVID when we reopen mm -hmm. in the future. I'm glad you brought that up because my next question is what led to the studs closure? So I know you talked about it a little bit, but maybe we can back up and say, how did we make that decision? Um, you know, we're one of the other huge assets to having 18 people who care deeply and are owners of a business is that um, we have 18 different skill sets. And um, because of that, we have people, you know, who work in government, we have people who um, who work in um, in medicine who are members of, of, of the co-op. And so I think we understood that the pandemic was going to be um, serious and bad and crippling for businesses and shutting down cities a lot earlier than I think other people did. Um, and so we had a discussion about um, the pandemic and what it, what it would mean and how it could affect us. I'd say like a month or more before people were, were even taking it seriously. Um, but the reality is in San Francisco, 
when the local government required a stay-at-home order and, and shut down the bars, we had to make a decision, as did all bars, do we keep operating, paying a very, very high rent? So we calculated that every day that the bar chose to keep open one more day cost us $420. Um, and that if we stayed open with no business, we would be in the hole at the end of three months, almost $40,000. And that, and so, well, I was going to say, and that is important because the stud was planning a move, right? Yeah. So when we talked about the arduous process that we went through in forming the stud collective, buying the bar and, uh, reopening in uh, the winter of 2017. The little footnote here is that we fought tooth and nail, but were only able to get a two-year lease. So we had the business for 2017 and 2018. We renegotiated a lease extension at the end of 2018 for another two years, 2019-2020. But when COVID struck, we were looking at the last um, year uh, that we currently had a lease for. So the reality was, was that we were going to have to either negotiate another extension um, or f- find a new space, which we'd been trying to do since we took over. I mean, we started looking at spaces in the summer of 2016 and had a lot of like, you know, real heartbreaks with some spaces that we fell, fell in love with. Um, but so in the face of COVID, we were like, look, this is, we absolutely respect the mandate. We, uh, the second that order went out, we closed the doors. Um, but as Nate said, we were looking at $420 a day, um, with no end in sight. So, and, and what is really amazing at this point, you know, just a couple months later, you know, we were doing this, these really hard conversations and decision making in April. And here we are the first week of August. And I feel so proud of us for making that hard choice because the stud would not have been able to reopen in its, its space at Ninth and Harrison um, before our lease was up, operating at a capacity that was sustainable for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That said, getting 17 people on board, though, was also, um, you know, I was on the one hand uh, really impressed with um, everybody for being able to like take off the emotional hat and put on the business hat and get on the same page as quickly as we did. But it was incredibly emotional for a lot of people. And the phone calls that that we had to make during April, back and forth amongst our membership, and then into May as we started calling our bar staff and, you know, parties and um, other people who were kind of like in that stud family. It was, it it felt really, really devastating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, we were realizing no one knows better than the collective members how much the stud means to the San Francisco queer community. And so we knew that 
um, when we announced that we were going to close that we had to give people a chance to say goodbye. And so I really wanted to provide that space for people. And so we um, planned a uh, online funeral to say goodbye to the stud. And we, everyone wore black and we had, we put out requests for funeral themed goodbye drag numbers to the stud. And we received dozens and dozens. We ended up, and, and one of our things that we wanted to do is we wanted to say yes to everybody. Anybody who made a, a drag, a digital drag number that wanted to say goodbye to the stud, we wanted to allow them to honor that, that their emotions and, and, and what they were feeling. And so we played them all. So back to back, the entire funeral from start to beginning was 11 hours and people stayed for the entire thing. We, when we finally signed off um, at, you know, in the early morning, there were still people, you know, on there wanting wanting to close our la- our doors for the last time with us, even though it was digital and, and online. And it was, it was moving. It was. Given all that, the stud is still going. It may have closed its doors, but it still exists online. So what is happening for the stud now? And maybe what is next for the stud collective? We have transitioned into a gay TV network and online merch emporium. <laughs> merchandise um we have we've worked really hard to um transition into this hibernation phase we are we are calling ourselves the stud in exile um we are not the first queer space that has been exiled and um maintained a really tight-knit community um while they are waiting for their glorious rebirth um, so we are doing just that. We are figuring out ways that we can um, keep our community engaged, that we can employ as many people as we can moving forward. We are, you know, as I said, we're doing um, online content. We've got Drag Live, our drag show, which is every Saturday night, um, with video submissions from queens, not just from the Bay Area, but from around the country and around the world, which has been really exciting to get um, a, a new mix of queens in who we wouldn't have been able to have in our physical space. Um, and we are collaborating with um, queer artists, um, creating some like new stud merchandise, which I'm so excited about. Chloe Miller, who does stud pin archives, has continued to dig through this amazing archival collection um, all of the artwork from Paul Sinclair, uh, also known as Gidget, who was a bartender at the stud in the 80s, who created dozens and dozens and dozens of little um, buttons and pins. Um, and then, so she's made a number of uh, merch pieces based on that artwork, and then has also started working with um, queer artists creating new work. Um, but we are definitely doing some plotting and planning about what else the stud in exile can look like. Um, We are doing a lot of meetings with city departments trying to figure out if um, and when we can do some uh, little speakeasy pop-up stud in exile events. So we will definitely keep people um, posted as, as we figure that out a little bit more. 
Mm-hmm. So we're basically doing all the things that you said. We're we're we've created an online presence where we're hosting not just stud created shows, but also um, other shows like Princess and um, Reparations and so many others. And we're still selling merchandise. Um, and this is all important because the stud does have a future. So what does the future look like for the stud? I mean, I the number of times I've said during this pandemic, I just wish I had a crystal ball. I, I mean, I believe with all of my heart that the stud is going to reopen. Um, when and where remains to be seen, but we are already um, doing the work and um, doing the research, beating the streets, looking to see what that space might be. Um, We, I mean, I am, I am hoping that a year from now we will be looking at uh, a situation in which we could reopen. Um, But we are, we're, 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 searching high and low already yeah i mean i think i think the whole the nightlife community in every major city across the world is asking these same questions like what what is nightlife going to look like in a world where standing closely next to somebody is dangerous um how do we how do we dance when dancing closely next to somebody is dangerous. Um, how do we watch theater and performances when sitting in a theater seat next to somebody is dangerous? Um, so, you know, the, but what I do know is all of human history has shown us that um, art and dancing and connection are just part of being human. Every culture has them. Um, they're not gonna go away the human race has been through pandemics before and we came out the other side and art, you know, stayed strong and theater stayed strong and music and dancing stayed strong. So, you know, what I, while I don't know when the stud will reopen, I do know that it will. I have every faith that it will. Um, And I just can't wait to be at a dance floor again with, with Mm -hmm. all of you. Yeah, same. And I, I, I just want to add that I think that art is also the way in which we get through these dark times. Not only will it exist afterwards, but it's an essential part on how we're all surviving COVID. I mean, we see that through our online drag shows, um, through our podcast, um, and through um, the many ways in which we, I think, continue to interact with our audience who is a part of the stud family. Um um, the last question I want to ask, and Tara, feel free to join in on the conversation because I know you're in producer mode right now, but we'd love to also hear from you. Um, do we have any advice for the folks who want to participate in horizontal business models who want to save their local queer bars by establishing a collective um, to carry on its legacy into the future? I'd say that cooperatively owned businesses are the future. They're how we're going to get through the changes that the whole world is going through right now. They fit in uh, really well in cities that are being gentrified, and they also fit in in uh, really well in cities and communities that don't have a lot of money. And there's a lot of ways to be cooperative. There are um, there are models 
endless amounts of models and you can even craft your own like we've ultimately done. But the, the real root of what makes a cooperatively owned business is the idea that decisions are made by people. That every person that is involved in your co-op gets one vote, one person, one vote, and money is not what drives our decisions. So it doesn't matter how much money you bring to the co-op. You, um, if you bring a little bit of money, you have one vote, and if you bring a lot of money, you have one vote, and that's that's equity, that's community, that's taking care of each other, um, and it's 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 all about just changing our ways of thinking and moving past the late stage capitalism that has really been so apparent. That is what's destroying America um, as we go through this um, pandemic. So uh, yeah, that's my advice is don't be, af- don't be afraid. Just realize that um, the reason why we don't know about these types of models is because we're intentionally taught that anything other than ruthless capitalism is bad. And it just takes a little bit of learning. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, don't be afraid of, of trying something new and trying the cooperative model. Oh my God. No, I mean, that was, that was spot on. Yeah. It just, it feels really exciting to me. Um, even just since we started the collective, the folks who have reached out, um, you know, via social media or just like sitting across from the bar at me when I'm bartending happy hour on a Friday who are like, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about this thing. I've, I've, I've got this group of friends. We're talking about doing something similar. And it's, it's been really exciting to see people trying to apply this model to um, arenas that don't traditionally, haven't traditionally been paired with cooperatives. Um, I, I really hope that as we move forward, the stud can continue to be um, a, uh, a, a role model and um, yeah, just show people that you can apply this um, to areas of, of business that haven't traditionally been affiliated with co-ops. If grocery stores can do it and bakeries can do it and strip clubs can do it and queer drag venues can do it, your business can do it. Yeah, I wanted to add in, this is Tara. I managed alongside Rachel for a couple years, which was a delight. Um, one of the most rewarding things for me has been, and, and it's still happening now, you know, even though I'm, I'm not actively managing there and where the bar has physically closed down, but we get so many people reaching out to us, asking us about, um, you know, wanting to save their business. I recently talked to somebody in New Orleans who's a place of work where they bartended, um, the, the, the owner just, when COVID hit, he just, he just bailed. Um, and, and she wanted to to figure out how to get her and the other bartenders together to form the co-op. I spent time talking to people down in Santa Cruz who formed, um, what started as a volunteer run syringe services program there and, um, now just got some, some funding. Um, and they wanted to try to do a really, you know, democratic co-op style model, I got to speak with um, somebody who is talking about theater and how people who really are invested in the theater can actually be a part of owning the businesses. Um, And the thing that I've said to all of them that I think is really important, and that goes for co-ops or any small business, is is looking into what resources are available. We were really... um, 
we had so much support from the Small Business Development Center here in San Francisco. And uh, we were assigned, you know, pro bono attorneys, um, uh, a financial consultant, um, a real estate agent, um, uh, people who helped us to come up with a, a financial forecast, you know, even though we didn't end up like meeting that, it still helped us. People that helped us to, to create a business plan, to look into loans, um, our attorneys who drafted up our operating agreement. I mean, those things can be really, really overwhelming. People who helped us choose our entity formation. And it's important to, to not, you know, try to do all of that on your own because you should be using your skills and resources and time to to be working on your specific things and utilize whatever is available in your city um you know and a lot of times people don't even know but going there they they were super eager to help us and they really did help us in hours and hours of free support which was just so wonderful um the last thing i wanted to say was there is on August 27th, and I can try to add this in at the end or text something too, but there's a, there's a, we're actually hosting, the stud is hosting a, um, a forum on Zoom that is talking with different people who currently run co-ops and people who want to form them. So we're sort of helping to host that and put that out there, but it's another way for people to learn more about cooperative structures. Yeah, though, I, I, I just want to say real quick, I'm so glad that you jumped in T because that is, you are so spot on as much as the majority of the world is set up to cater to capitalism. Um, there is a really amazing network of resources supporting cooperative models and businesses. And, you know, some of the other things that I was thinking of just as you were talking is, you know, we got invited to a, a legal uh, like audit clinic where we got to sit down with a lawyer and talk about exactly like what our concerns were going over, you know, uh, a variety of issues. We um, have also worked with um, DAWI, Democracy at Work Institute, um, and ended up getting our amazing bookkeeper, Lex, through DAWI. And there, there really are so many resources um, that as overwhelming as sort of starting from scratch might seem, um, the, the, like the programs are there. And um, if, you, if you kind of like know where to look or like the, the, the people and organizations who've reached out to us and said, hey, I saw that you guys are doing this cooperative thing. And it's been really wonderful to be able to share those resources with people. Wow, this has been such a powerful conversation. And I know that we touched on a lot of things and there are so many more things that we did not talk about. But I think that maybe we have to have uh, Stud Stories Part 2 on how the um, Stud Collective was formed and survived COVID. And hopefully we can talk about how the Stud was reborn. Um, I just wanna thank uh, Nate Albi and Rachel Ryan for joining us today. And also, Tara, so glad that you hopped in and um, gave those really important pointers at the end um, for people who want to form their own co-ops. Um, it's possible, and uh, you can do it too. So thank you all so much for being a part of this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It's so sweet to talk to you guys. Thank you all for listening to Stud Stories. 
If you liked this episode and don't want to miss any future stud stories, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review us. Your reviews and ratings help keep us up there in the iTunes ranking, which means more rad queers and new listeners can find us. If you really want to support the stud and help this legendary queer bar find its forever home, please subscribe to our Patreon account. Patreon subscribers get early access to stud stories, special access to our archival research materials, and more. To get your very own stud sweatshirt, t-shirt, or tank, or to find out about new merch and all the other stud updates, please visit our website, studsf.com. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, since we can't party with you in person right now, we invite you to join us every Saturday for our weekly virtual drag show, Drag Alive, at twitch.tv slash drag alive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood, written and produced by Vivienne Forevermore, a.k.a. Micah Sigourney, along with production manager and researcher Ben McGrath and music by Paige Turner. I was your host, Honey Mahogany. Stay studly, everyone. Hey everyone, this is Tara Haywood again. Thanks for listening in today and for supporting the stud. I wanted to mention the panel coming up on August 27th about co-ops, and that is something that the stud is hosting along with the Bridge Project and the San Francisco Mime Troop. Um, Again, the details are August 27th. It's at 7 p.m., till 10 p.m. and you can find information by going to Facebook and looking up Paths to Empowerment, a panel about cooperative governance. It's going to be about co-ops and democratically run arts organizations. You can also always reach us at info at studsf.com. That's our email address and we would love to hear about what's going on with your co-op, how things are changing for you during the pandemic, and also answer any questions we might be able to about changing your business model or forming a co-op or any other questions you might have. So thank you again for all of your support.